0: It's the Adam Ragusea Podcast, episode 59, coming to you from just off of the National Mall in Washington, D.C. The uh, Washington Monument is over my shoulder, for those watching on home video. I'm happy to report that I am not the only a-hole out here doing a selfie shot right now. It's it's D.C., so, yeah. You'll have to forgive all of the background noise. I just uh, I cannot tape an hour-long podcast up in the hotel room with my kids. I'm in DC shooting some stuff from a YouTube channel that I'm I'm super excited to show you in a few weeks, but today we're gonna be dealing mainly with the question of whether you and I and everyone else ought to consider the word obesity to be a slur against fat people. And if you're anything like me, we're already off to a rocky start because to people like me, Fat people sounds way more like a slur than obesity does. But there are people who have been working to reclaim the word fat in the same way that sexual and gender minorities reclaimed the word queer, right? Queer is a very old Germanic word that was used for centuries to mean strange or unusual in a bad way, like worthy of suspicion. That meat looks a little queer. Perhaps we'd best not eat it. That kind of thing. And there, of course, I am using a meat in its original sense, meaning food of any kind, or perhaps more specifically the main part of the food item that you're going to go for, like the meat of the fruit, as opposed to the skin or the core of the fruit. We still use meat that way sometimes today because meat used to refer to all food. The really narrow definition you know, the edible flesh of warm-blooded animals, that's also pretty old, but it did not emerge as the dominant definition until pretty recently, like the early 20th century. So when Charles Dickens wrote, "'Well, a few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and some drink,' well, I think that Dickens probably would have meant food of any kind, not specifically flesh." Tangent over. But like most Adam Ragusea pod tangents, that one was actually, secretly, relevant and perfectly on point for the argument that I am attempting to unspool this episode, and that argument I can summarize thusly. Words change meaning all the time. And if the people who speak English decide that obesity is actually a slur, then it will be so. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's how language works. That's how it has always worked. On the other hand, individual English speakers or a small group of English speakers don't get to unilaterally redefine a word for the rest of us, or uh, maybe they actually do. I mean, I think we have a well-developed tradition across many societies where we attempt to address community-wide concerns by going first to the people most affected and taking their lead about what we should do next about this community-wide concern. So if large numbers of very fat people decide that they would rather be called fat than obese, then I'm inclined to follow their lead as they are the ones most directly affected. I myself may be fat enough that internet cave creatures occasionally send me nice little notes telling me how I am a dripping piece of lard. But I'm self-aware enough to know that I effectively pass as thin, or thin enough, and as a result, I mostly walk free of the crushing stigma suffered by people who carry a lot more adipose tissue than I do such as, perhaps, the author of an email that I received in response to my recent podcast episode about incretin mimetic drugs like Ozempic, which I called the beginning of the end of the obesity pandemic. I remain very excited about the promise of those drugs, though I would like to briefly amend that episode to mention another very promising avenue of treatment that scientists are exploring. And this one involves uh, literally transplanting gut microbes from a skinny subject into a fat subject. And the fat subject gets skinnier. That's been done in rodent studies and similar fecal microbiota transplants have been done in humans to treat other diseases. That's another very promising avenue of research, and it may work on the same underlying mechanism as drugs like Ozempic, and that is to control the release of energy-regulating hormones generated in the gut in response to your food. I should have talked about that when I talked about the new incretin mimetic drugs, but It fits nicely into this episode, too, because if you can make a fat mouse thin by transplanting poop from a skinny mouse into a fat mouse's entrails, which is what they did, if that's true, then that really bolsters the notion that obesity is a disease that happens to you as opposed to a lifestyle choice that you inflict upon yourself. And that really should inform how people like me take emails like the one that I got in response to the Ozempic episode. I'm not going to quote this email directly or tell you anything about the person who sent it because I want like zero risk of internet sleuths finding this person and subjecting them to abuse. This person wrote to express their disappointment with me and my episode, though to their credit, they acknowledged they had not listened to it all the way through. They said they found the very little of the episode that they had encountered to be uh, triggering, so they instead skimmed the transcript of the episode. I should say that I do captions for every single episode, either personally, myself, or sometimes I have a company that I use that does human transcripts of all of my stuff. And all of that goes into the YouTube version of the podcast episode. And so you can always watch the YouTube version with captions on, or you can hit the transcript button in YouTube and just read the whole thing. So this person wrote me and said that they had skimmed the transcript, but they acknowledged that they had not read the episode thoroughly because they found it too triggering. The title, you may recall, was The End of Obesity. And let's jump off the ride right there to discuss this concept of triggering, triggering conversation or content. Trigger in this context is short for trauma trigger. And that is an idea that comes from the study of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's a decades old concept. It's also been called a trauma stressor or a trauma stimulus or a trauma reminder. Trauma reminder is good because of how self-explanatory it is, but I reckon that it's also bad because it sounds a little too mild, you know? trigger already has a, a violent connotation and therefore seems to fit this phenomenon better, my humble opinion. The way the mental health disciplines generally consider it Trauma triggers are things you associate so strongly with a past traumatic experience that being exposed to those triggers goes beyond simply making you uncomfortable. All of the established scientific or clinical definitions that I can find mention this. For it to be a trauma trigger, as they define it, it has to elicit uncontrollable responses, which could range from sweaty palms to total hysteria. Right. And what is a trauma? The DSM-5 definition is exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. That could include suffering those events yourself, or witnessing someone else suffer those events, or hearing about it happening to someone you love, etc. So let's get into uh, examples, right? Here is a true restaurant-based story of bodily and psychological trauma. Surely I don't need to say trigger warning at this point. I've told you what I'm going to talk about. Anybody who doesn't want to hear anymore can switch off right now. I don't need to say trigger warning in order to warn you. You have been warned. But I still understand why people say trigger warning anyway, even when everyone has already been warned. Saying trigger warning serves to underline the point, in case not everybody was paying attention when you explained what you were going to be talking about. It also creates a beat of pause, which is important. Because you can't just spring on people that you're going to talk about something awful and then immediately launch into describing the awful thing. You have to give people enough time to leave the room or shut off the podcast or whatever, which I suppose is what I'm doing right now. I'm stalling. To give people time before I launch into a story of bodily and psychological trauma — that occurred in a burger restaurant in the 1980s. It's not that bad. Nobody dies, nobody gets assaulted. And this is not my story. This is a story told by my dear friend, Benjamin R. Harrison, host of two Star Trek recap podcasts that I talk about all the time. The Greatest Trek, where they review new Trek series and The Greatest Generation, where they review to the next generation and now they're into Voyager. I write the music for those shows, and I come on those shows sometimes, just as they come on my shows sometimes. So, Ben from the Greatest Trek, Greatest Generation podcasts, Ben told this story on his podcast. So, I am not betraying any trust by relaying his story to you. He's already told this in public. So, when Ben was a little boy, he was eating in a burger restaurant, and he reached for the ketchup. The cap on the bottle of ketchup was loose. So when he turned the bottle over, all the ketchup came gushing out all over the table like blood. And at that exact moment, a blood-curdling scream came from the kitchen of this restaurant, where a woman working back there accidentally dropped her wedding ring into the deep fryer and just instinctively reached in to retrieve it before she had had a moment to think it through. By the way, when I did the yeast versus cake donut video recently at uh, Status Dough in Knoxville, Tennessee, those guys told me a nearly identical story about someone that they had worked with. This is apparently a thing that happens around deep fryers. Stuff falls in sometimes, and if everything happens fast enough, people just reach in to get it back without thinking. Obviously, sticking your bare or plastic-gloved hand into bubbling oil is gonna result in horrific injuries. The woman who dropped her ring into the fryer had a trauma that day. Little Ben Harrison had a bad day, too, because remember, he was just a little kid when he heard that blood-curdling scream come from the kitchen, and it happened at the exact moment when he spilled the red ketchup all over the table. So in his little boy mind, he was responsible. He spilled the ketchup, and then a lady screamed like she had stuck her hand into a -a friolator because she did. And Ben said in his podcast that he has had to work through those memories with his therapist. And only his therapist has a fully informed opinion on whether Ben suffered a true trauma that day, as defined by the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And only Ben's therapist has a fully informed opinion on whether ketchup is an uncomfortable reminder of an unpleasant childhood experience, or if it is a true trauma trigger for Ben — that is, a stimulus so linked with a true trauma in a person's brain that the stimulus alone results in literal flashbacks or phantom pain or uncontrollable terror — like something bigger than just discomfort. A more conventional example of trauma and trauma trigger that no one would dispute would be all of the like US soldiers who come back from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, where they were constantly under threat from improvised explosive devices. And now when they hear fireworks or a truck backfiring or whatever, they will slip into a fugue state or just dive under the nearest table or they fly into a violent rage, all kinds of things. The trauma was getting blown up by an IED or watching your best friend get blown up by an IED, etc. The trigger is the loud noises that remind you of that. In this example, this theoretical soldier experienced something incredibly painful and scary that coincided with a loud noise. And so, as an evolutionary adaptation, the soldier's brain learns that loud noises equal mortal peril. And the incredible neurological energy of that trauma forged unusually strong neural links between the stimulus and the memories of pain and terror. Mental links that are so strong that perhaps they can never be broken. And as the train pulls into the station, here's a much less dramatic example. Okay, I had a car accident when I was 17, where the airbag went off. Much less dramatic example, I said, but maybe a more relatable example. I was fine in this accident, but I was a little banged up, and it easily could have been much, much worse. Like. Personally, I would not characterize that experience as a trauma just because I don't think that I was as scared as I should have been because I was 17. But on an intellectual level now, like I know that I experienced the threat of imminent serious injury or death. So I could, if I wanted to, cram this into the DSM-5 definition of trauma if I wanted to. And if you've ever been in a car when the airbags went off, you know that smell. Cars use explosive propellants to inflate the bags in response to the collision. So there's this weird smell of like burnt cornstarch after an airbag goes off. Some airbags literally use cornstarch as part of the, the little bomb that explodes inside the bag to make it inflate in the split second before your face hits it in the collision. Right. I just remember waking up after the crash and looking for my glasses, which had been knocked off of my face, presumably by the airbag. Anyway, insurance paid for that car to get fixed up, and months later, when I picked that car up from the shop, I was, I was 17. I was so excited to have my freedom again, but then my heart kind of sunk when I got into the car, and there was still that lingering smell of burnt cornstarch. Any car owner knows that once a strong smell enters the upholstery, it's never coming out again. And I got this visceral feeling of like wild animal fear when that smell hit my nostrils again, months after the car accident. Was that a trauma trigger? I wouldn't call it that because as I recall, it, it, it just. It was just a feeling that I was, I was able to control, right? It was a feeling I was able to control, because after all, the accident wasn't that big of a deal to me. Nearly everybody who drives has an accident like that at some point but I'm probably not the best judge of whether I was traumatized or triggered. Maybe the fear I felt getting into that car affected me in ways that I did not perceive. Maybe I drove kind of erratically after picking up that car from the shop because my adrenaline was pumping in response to that smell that's linked with a scary experience in my mind. Maybe I was I was mean to my family or like my girlfriend that day in a way that I don't remember, but they do. Who knows? Then there's the time that uh, my older kid burned his hand on the new oven in our just renovated kitchen at the old house in Georgia. We loved that kitchen. We were so excited to have finished it. It was really the first big purchase that we made with my new YouTube money. And then my boy burned his hand really badly on the oven. And the scream still echoes in my skull to this moment. In the days and weeks after that accident, every time I went back into that kitchen, I got this awful feeling in the pit of my stomach. The sights and the smells of that room were linked with that scream in my mind. And any parent knows that pain experienced by your child hurts you like 10 times more than pain that you experience yourself. So I, I definitely consider that experience to have been a, a mild trauma for me. Was the kitchen a true trauma trigger for me? I don't know. I mean, it sucked that I was no longer excited by that kitchen. I still felt in control of my feelings, though. Um, I suppose, again, I'm not the best person to be the judge of that. I suppose there was a period when I found myself avoiding going into that kitchen whenever possible because of the feeling that I got when I walked in there. And in that sense, you could say that that traumatic memory interfered with my daily life. And that's something that mental health people often use as as an indicator of pathology, right? A feeling or a behavior is a problem for you, If it actually causes a problem for you, which I suppose this did. It made a little problem for me, not a huge problem, as I was obviously able to go into that kitchen to film all of the videos that I filmed in there. When money was on the line, I was able to summon the courage to enter that room, no problem. Maybe if I missed out on paying gigs because I was too scared to smell that kitchen again, then definitely I would call that a, a trauma a trauma trigger of, of some kind. I've had no extremely traumatic experiences and therefore I don't think I have any serious triggers. To try to imagine real post-traumatic stress, I summon that bad feeling that I used to get in that kitchen And I try to multiply it by a hundred in my head. And I figure then maybe that's what it feels like for an Iraq veteran on the 4th of July when yahoos like me set off fireworks. So this emailer who wrote to complain about my previous episode, The End of Obesity, this emailer said in words similar to these. This person said, I am a fat person. And your use of the word obesity, and talking about obesity cures and all of that, that triggered me. Or rather, this person was worried that listening to the episode in full would trigger them, and they wished that I would not have put them in that position. And it would be very easy for someone in my position to dismiss such an email. I could say, sorry. It's not my job to make you comfortable. If anything, my job is the opposite. My job is to help you explore areas of knowledge or areas of thought that are important and that push you out of your comfort zone, things you wouldn't come to yourself, right? People in my position tend to find that our skin thickens a little bit the longer we are public figures. And as a person who discusses controversial topics for a mass audience on the internet, I am trying to take my online security a little more seriously lately, and I've done so with the assistance of Aura, sponsor of this episode. Get a 14-day free trial right now at Aura.com slash Adam. Why might you need Aura? Well, search yourself online right now. See how much personal information you can find about yourself. It's probably a lot because your information is for sale all over the internet. Plus, governments like this one in Washington here, they put your information online, like property records that could be used to to find your address. Those are legally public documents, though often practically difficult to find. People finder websites have bots that scrape all of those hard to search primary sources, and then bam, your address or phone number or names of close relatives might be easily searchable online. As a semi-public figure, I worry about crazies coming after me. It's happened before. But everybody has security concerns online, and Aura is the one app that you need. No need to sign up for multiple services like password managers or VPNs. With an Aura membership, they will search for your private info online, and if they find it on like a legitimate website, Aura will send an email requesting that that website take down your information, because people find finder websites are required to take your stuff down upon request. It's just too much work for me to constantly do that on my own and follow up all the time. Also, Aura looks for your personal info on illegitimate platforms like the dark web. And if they find your passwords or whatever, they will help you to decide what to do about it to protect yourself. With Aura you also get uh, parental controls, you get a password manager, you get a VPN, you get antivirus, identity theft insurance and more for one affordable price. You can either let people profit off of your information while compromising your security or you can go to aura.com/adam and get that 14-day free trial. Find out how often they find your info on the dark web. Thank you Aura. So anyway, If somebody emails me and says, hey, that topic you talked about on your show made me uncomfortable, it would be very easy for me, Adam, to say, well, sorry, it's not my job to make you comfortable. I could say that. And that might be true. But that argument only goes so far, right? Like, just because something is true, or you believe it to be true, doesn't mean that you have to say it out loud sometimes you don't sometimes nothing good comes of speaking a truth out loud when i was taking the elevator down you know down through the hotel just now to come down here to the mall and record so the dude who was next to me in the uh the elevator He's totally blue ass, right? He like he straight up stunk up the elevator. And I could have turned to him and I could have said, dude, he farted. And that would have been true, but what good comes of saying that out loud? Zero. Just breathe through your mouth, get on with your life. Calling an individual person obese. That's something you generally avoid doing, right? Unless there's some specific reason to. Like if I'm your doctor and I need to talk to you about your health, I might call you obese. But even then, I'd probably soften the language somewhat, right? I would say, in patients with obesity, we really worry about blood lipids. And so I want to be sure to check your blood lipids today or something like that. However, if that patient was just one person in a study group of 1,000 patients, I might say something like, well, patients in the study group were all either class two or class three obese. And that's not nearly as socially delicate because we're talking about people in the aggregate as opposed to singling out an individual. So we don't have to be as delicate. All of us, we are all constantly moderating what we say and how we say it based upon who we're talking to, and when we're talking to them, and where we're talking to them, and what we're talking about. All the parties in any given communication are constantly negotiating expectations about what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. In conversation. Like, I try to be really sex-positive as a person and a parent. I'm all about destigmatizing pleasure and all of that, but I'm still not gonna rock it into a detailed description of some aspect of my sex life right now, even though I think it's perfectly fine to talk about that stuff. And maybe I will talk about it in detail in some other venue, you know? But the listeners of this podcast have a certain expectation about what we're going to talk about and how we're going to talk about it. And hardcore bedroom details would be out of bounds here unless I really eased you into it, so to speak, and gave people plenty of time to opt out if they wanted to. In the legal world, they talk about reasonable expectations, like when I would teach a basic two-week primer on media law to my journalism students at Mercer University, I would tell them what all the textbooks say, which is that you're generally within your legal right to record people and take their picture in situations where they lack a reasonable expectation of privacy, like sitting off the National Mall and recording a podcast. I have no reasonable expectation of privacy right now, as I would have if I was sitting in a bathroom stall just 100 feet that way, right? People have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the bathroom, even if it's a public bathroom. Do listeners of this podcast have a reasonable expectation that they will not be made to hear about the social and medical dimensions of fatness? I don't think so. I think I've done a pretty good job establishing that we mostly talk about food and adjacent topics here. Body composition and diet are as intimately linked as two factors can be. And I've done tons and tons of health and fitness-related topics before. So no, I don't think anyone has a reasonable expectation that Adam Ragusea podcasts will be free of talk about fatness. That's one of the things that we talk about here. But it's not just what you talk about, it's how you talk about it, right? You can talk about fatness without calling it a pandemic, which is the word I use, and it's a classification that we use for diseases, right? And that's, that's kind of a loaded term, accurate as it may be. And you can talk about fatness without calling it obesity, which more than a few people now consider to be a slur. This person who emailed me said, obesity is considered a slur. And I instinctively bristle at sentences like that. You know, the passive voice there bugs me. Give me like a human subject in that sentence. Come on, like who considers it a slur? Is it you? Is it some organization with authority in this matter? If you wanna persuade me, say, X considers obesity to be a slur. Tell me who. That information is relevant in a context where a word is not yet broadly considered to be a slur. Like, if you want to assert that the N-word is a slur, you really don't need to cite your sources on that one, right? Like, you are simply articulating a near-universal opinion. But... Obesity, the word, is still widely spoken and heard between people who do not consider it to be a slur, and it remains the technical term of art. Nearly everybody in the world of medical science describes people with very high levels of adiposity as being obese. That doesn't mean it's right. I'm gonna talk now about intellectual disabilities and what we used to call people who have such disabilities. We called them the R-word back in the day, which I'm, I'm gonna say out loud now. Warning. Medical science used to classify very low IQ people as being mentally retarded. There's nothing inherently slurish about that term, right? Retarded just means delayed or restrained, right? A person was said to be mentally retarded if their normal intellectual development was arrested in some way. Retarded only became the R-word because a-holes kept using the word pejoratively as an insult. They turned it into a slur, and they deserve the blame for that. We we ought not blame the messengers, who in this case were the people with intellectual disabilities or their loved ones who came forward and they said, hey, can we just all say intellectually disabled now instead of retarded? Retarded has become an insult now, and intellectually disabled is probably a more scientifically accurate term anyway, so let's just not say the R word anymore, okay? Okay. Intellectually disabled is probably too long and too hard to say to ever be used as an insult, so it's probably safe from perjuration for the time being. But if it ever gets used widely as an insult, maybe we will move on to a new word. And such is the nature of language. It constantly evolves whether you want it to or not. There's nothing inherently bad about the word obesity. In English, whenever you have two words that mean the same thing, you can probably bet that one of them is Germanic in origin and the other is Latin in origin. One is descended from the word spoken by the Anglo-Saxons in England, and the other is descended from the word spoken by the Norman conquerors of England in 1066. If one of these two synonyms sounds fancy and mellifluous, it's probably the Norman French word descended from Latin. And if one of these two synonyms sounds abrupt and percussive, and monosyllabic, it's probably the Anglo-Saxon word descended from Proto-German. Fat is Anglo-Saxon, obviously. Obese is French. Or it's from the French word, uh, how would you say this, obesité, <laughs> which is from the Latin, obesitas, which literally just means fat. Two words literally mean the same thing. And when medical science reached for a word to which they would attach all kinds of new scientific detail that they were accumulating, well, they naturally reached for the fancier word, as they usually do. They said obese rather than fat. And when they picked up the word, they changed its definition by applying all kinds of new clinical detail to it. Obese doesn't just mean fat anymore. It means very fat, very, very fat, right? Fat enough that your level of fatness is strongly correlated with bad health outcomes. The fat might not directly cause the bad health outcomes, but it is correlated with bad health outcomes. And it is a fact that the clear medical scientific consensus of 2023 is that very high levels of adiposity defined as class two and class three obesity, that level probably hurts your health directly. And at the very least, it is strongly correlated with bad health outcomes. And interventions that make such people less fat usually help them live longer and healthier lives. That's not my opinion. You shouldn't care about my opinion on such topics. I have not earned an opinion. I am merely summarizing and relaying the opinion of the American Medical Association and like every mainstream group of healthcare providers or health scientists that you could think of. And this person who wrote me the email said that that consensus is wrong. And to support that rather enormous claim, this person pasted a link to a podcast episode by someone who is not a physician or any kind of health scientist, and even if that podcast were by like a doctor—well, there's lots of doctors who are total quacks—when you lack deep expertise in a subject area, it is logical to defer to the majority professional opinion among people who are experts in that area, and that's what I try to do. That doesn't mean that I don't consider outlier views, but I also acknowledge that I have very little ability to scrutinize outsider views. If those outsider views turn out to be the correct views, well, I have confidence that eventually the medical establishment will be persuaded of the error of their ways, as they have been many times before, and they will change their views. And that will change my views. Right, But until that happens, I have no logical reason to believe an outlier view over the prevailing view because I have not enough information to assess the validity of the arguments being made. There are some organizations that have bubbled up in recent years dedicated to destigmatizing fatness, which is a goal that I fully support. However, some of these orgs have also latched onto extreme fringe scientific views that being very fat is not at all bad for your health. And to justify that claim, they point to studies showing that fat people are not so unhealthy after all, at least comparatively speaking. The problem <laughs> problem with them making that claim is that those studies looked at young people. Like the same types of studies find that a health gap between fat people and thin people really opens up as we age. A young body can withstand all kinds of stresses, but then they start to wear on you over time. Or people making this really extreme fringe scientific argument will point to studies of uh, all-cause mortality, where they find that thin people are even more likely to die in a given period than fat people. And what those studies don't take into account is that people tend to lose a lot of weight in the final years and months of their life as they grow very old or very sick, they stop eating. And you have to account for that weight loss in your analysis. This is not my opinion. Adam Ragusea's opinion on such things is nearly worthless, okay? That is the easily... Googleable opinion of mainstream modern medical science, which remains the best game in town despite all its flaws. If you want the real deal, go to Google Scholar search for recent meta-analyses or literature reviews on obesity and longevity, or obesity and cardiovascular disease, obesity and health, whatever. They all come to the same basic conclusion that being very fat is probably directly bad for your health. There is controversy within the field about how fat is too fat, how thin is too thin, how best to measure these things. I mean, everyone agrees that BMI is a flawed metric, but it's the best we have at the population level. There is scientific debate about the extent to which fatness hurts people versus the extent to which fat phobia hurts people by interfering with their medical care and subjecting them to psychological stress, which can manifest as physiological stress. That's all I said in that episode, and that's all. True, to the best of my knowledge. That is the mainstream scientific view. And this person who sent me an email said, it's wrong. And maybe it is. But nobody actually knows that yet. Time will tell. As it has done for all of the other huge things that science used to get wrong, and now they get it right. But it's undeniably true that fat phobia exists, and lots of different studies have indicated that fat phobia does way more to hurt people than it does to help them, to motivate them to lead a healthier lifestyle. Fat shaming does not work very well, according to the best evidence that we have. It doesn't make people thinner. It doesn't make people healthier. It only makes the problem worse. So. I totally understand why a self-described very fat person might be really, really sick of hearing about the obesity pandemic, and I can understand why they would really prefer to not hear about that in this fun podcast they listen to where the guy talks about flavor molecules and frozen garlic or whatever. You might think, you know, my doctor badgers me enough about my weight, I don't need the season your cutting board guy to do it to me too and fair enough wait for that motorcycle to go by but I also have to have some amount of faith that I can talk about a reasonable variety of topics I can label them accurately with titles and thumbnails that tell you what you're getting into and then you can make an informed adult choice about whether you're going to catch that one That sounds like a reasonable argument that I just made, right? I think so too. But I can also acknowledge that argument only goes so far. Hey, I told you this episode was gonna be about how Hitler was actually right about everything, and if you don't wanna hear that, well, you can just click on something else. You can't get mad about what I said because I told you what was coming." That doesn't work, right? Because some things are inappropriate to say in any context, because they are wrong. Unfortunately, there aren't many cases as clear cut as the Hitler one. That one is clearly in the sphere of deviance, as coined and defined by the media scholar Daniel Hallen a long time ago now, uh, in reference to his study of media coverage of the Vietnam War. Now, everybody in media studies talks about Hallen spheres, The sphere of deviance is stuff that most people in your audience would agree that no one should ever say. Fat people are fat because they have corrupted souls. Almost no one listening thinks that's an appropriate claim to make. And so it is in our sphere of deviance. Then there's the sphere of consensus, which contains all the stuff that nearly everyone in the audience would agree with. Statements like food is good, Sphere of consensus. Then there's the sphere of legitimate controversy. The kinds of things that only some people in your audience would say. Some people in your audience would disagree, perhaps vehemently, but they wouldn't say, oh, how dare you say that? Like they would recognize that some good people could honestly come to that point of view, even if they themselves disagree with it. I wish for a world in which most people in developed countries are on some kind of safe and effective pharmaceutical appetite suppressant to spare us and our planet from some of the problems associated with overconsumption of food. That's what I said a few episodes ago, and I will say it again. And lots of people will agree with me, and lots of very smart people will disagree with me. But few of them would say to me, "You know, shame on you for even entertaining that argument. I think most of us here would put that argument in Daniel Howland's sphere of legitimate controversy. So I don't think that i I don't think that I need to apologize for making the episode that I did or making the arguments that I did, talking about the science that I talked about. There has to be spaces for people to talk about issues like the global rise of adiposity-related disabilities and disorders. We have to be able to talk about this somewhere." That doesn't mean that everybody has to be able to talk about this. That kind of talk could be a trauma trigger for some people, and only those people know for sure if it really is a trauma trigger or if it's just something that makes you a little uncomfortable. I'm not anybody's therapist. Only you know if the discrimination that you have faced because of your body actually constitutes a trauma or just a shitty bad time. And only you know if talk about fatness actually constitutes a trauma trigger for you, something that elicits a powerful, uncontrollable response from your brain. This is not a purely academic distinction. The difference matters because if large numbers of people are legit triggered by something, then it's incumbent upon me and any other maker of mass media to take that information into account. Think about something like epilepsy. We all know that strobing effects can cause epileptic seizures in some people, and that's not something that an individual epileptic person can be expected to handle entirely on their own. They can't control what comes up on the TV next, and if the show flashes at them a lot without any warning or at all, like they're gonna have a seizure. And they can't realistically be expected to just dust themselves off and get over that seizure, okay? Those of us who make visual mass media products have to help protect people with epilepsy, even if that's a tiny minority of the audience, right? We have to not put strobe effects into our videos. Or if we do, we have to warn people that it's coming so they can look away or watch something else. So similarly, if I learn that a word that I'm using in a in a podcast is sending some small but substantial number of people into like fugue states that they can't just snap out of, that's something that I should really take into consideration. And I have to guard against the natural tendency to be defensive whenever somebody tries to bring that kind of issue to your attention. From the little information that I got from this email, or it, doesn't sound to me like that's what's going on here. If there's a topic that you think people have a legitimate right to discuss, but it really upsets you to hear about it, then I think that that's mainly a you problem. Assuming that no one is cornering you into this conversation that's really uncomfortable for you, assuming you've received fair warning about what is going to be discussed, In that instance, right, it's it's, it's our responsibility to manage our media diet ourselves. But if this emailer were here right now, what they would probably say is, well, you know, it's not just about me and my discomfort, Adam. It's about you using a slur. You shouldn't say that, regardless of what effect the word has on one person in the audience. And I think that is a strong argument if the word in question is legitimately slur. And let us finally interrogate the word obese and the case against it. I've read all the arguments that I can from smart, informed people in the health world who think that obese is a slur. And the first thing that I've observed is that none of them really argue that obese is a slur they argue that we should start to regard obese as a slur. It's a a prescriptive argument rather than a descriptive observation. And I think that's totally legit. Words mean whatever we say they mean. We all make up the language together as we go, and thus all of us have standing to argue that a word's meaning has changed, or it should change. Like, I've had this dumb bugaboo for years about how people use the word acronym to describe initialisms. Like All acronyms are initialisms, but not all initialisms are acronyms. An acronym is an initialism that you pronounce as a word. So F-B-I is an initialism, but it's only an acronym if you pronounce it F-B-I. Says Who? says dictionaries and stuff. And some more recent dictionary definitions acknowledge that people have been using acronym more broadly in recent years. And that's good. That's what dictionaries should do. Dictionaries should describe the language as it is spoken, not prescribe how it should be spoken. But I am fully within my right advocate for the preservation of the original meaning of acronym, because I think it's a more useful word if we only use it to describe initialisms that we pronounce as words. If we broaden it to mean any kind of initialism, then we have two words that mean the exact same thing, and no word that only describes initialisms that are pronounced as words. And the most powerful way that I can advocate for that is not to, like, tut-tut at people who use acronym to mean something different? That's pedantry, and everyone hates it. The most powerful way that I can advocate for the kind of language I want to see in the world is to use language the way that I want it to be used. Other English speakers can either join me in talking this way or not. There are some really smart people from the health world who advocate for the notion that we should all start to consider obese a slur. That's very different from saying obese is a slur. Duh, didn't you know? Which is probably a much less persuasive approach to take with people if you really want to see this change in the language. And here is my best summary of what I think is the best argument for this. Obese has come to be used pejoratively in the language. That is undeniably true. I mean, Google it. People use obese as an insult the same way that they use fat as an insult. But it's, it's more than that. Obese is a label that people in the medical establishment have used for a long time to badger patients about their weight in really counterproductive ways. Yes, adiposity is partly the result of individual choices about what to eat or not to eat, but the research is really clear that in practice, people have very little ability to control their body composition outside of a given range. Variables like what neighborhood you grew up in and how much money your parents made are far more predictive of your body fat levels than anything else. And no weight loss regime has proven widely effective in the long term, with the exception of bariatric surgery. And the reason that I'm so excited about incretin mimetic drugs is that they are yielding results comparable to bariatric surgery. We don't know yet if these drugs work for a whole lifetime. They're too new for us to be able to know that. But it's looking like they might be that effective in the long term. I'm excited about that, and I wanted to tell my audience about that precisely because I think fat phobia is such a cancer in our society. And I don't think it's realistic to expect most fat people to just put down the fork and lose the weight. Uh oh, I lost my light. Hold on. Okay, I'm now lighting myself with my phone flashlight for those watching on home video, and I have had to switch to a different mic, so I might sound a little bit different. But anyway, I don't think it's realistic or helpful to tell people to just put down the fork and lose the weight. That expectation is harmful. And my hope is that this new generation of better, safer appetite suppressants will render that whole mess moot, right? There are two things that seem to be true at the same time. One, being very fat is a serious health risk. And two, badgering people about their weight is also a serious health risk, because it makes them less likely to go to the doctor and all kinds of other problems. Both of those things can be true at the same time, and they are both true, according to the best evidence that we have. To lots of people, the word obese has nonetheless been fatally tainted. Not really by the internet cave dwellers who use it as an insult, but rather the word has been tainted by people in the healthcare establishment who have done a lot of things wrong in their approach to this problem. Also, obesity is a word that gets misapplied in the healthcare world all the time. If a provider labels you as obese purely on the basis of your BMI, your height-to-weight ratio, that's bad if you're among the people for whom the conventional BMI categories don't really apply. If you're particularly muscular, or if you're a woman, or you're anyone other than the white European men for whom the BMI categories are originally designated, you might get labeled as being obese when you really are not. Remember that I am technically obese. You've seen me. You think I'm obese? There are better, more scientific terms that we could use that don't have such a harmful connotation. And here's one that has been floating around for a few years now. Adiposity-based chronic disease, ABCD, which would only be an acronym if you pronounced it Abcada. Adiposity-based disease sounds pretty good to me, not just because it is untainted by past-objectionable uses, but also because it is more precise. The problem isn't weight. It's adiposity. It's body fat. And lots of body fat might not always be bad in and of itself. Fat people tend to have high blood pressure and high blood pressure tends to give people heart attacks and strokes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that fat gives you the heart attack. The same cluster of genetic and lifestyle factors that makes you likely to be fat may also, incidentally, give you high blood pressure, and that's what kills you, not the fat. But as we have discussed previously, there's, there's lots of other cases in which scientists think that fat directly does hurt people. There's obvious examples like all of the mobility problems caused by lots of body fat. And then there's less obvious stuff, like the particular kind of fat cells in your abdomen seem to cause inflammatory responses in the rest of the body that might lead to heart disease, for example. So by saying adiposity-based disease, we're being more specific. We're not just talking about harmless fatness or incidental fatness. We're talking about the kind of fatness that actually hurts people. I'm inclined to take my lead from the scientific community, and I suspect that I will keep saying obese a little as long as they keep saying obese. But I'm going to try to avoid it. I think a person in my position has some better options these days, and one of them is fat. Maybe I need to get over calling people fat when very fat people are trying to reclaim that word, the way that queer people reclaimed queer. Probably the most prominent advocate of this reclamation project is Aubrey Gordon, uh, co-host of a very popular podcast about junk science that's called Maintenance Phase. I like a lot of what Aubrey does. She's super smart, and she says, I am a fat lady. Call me a fat lady because that's what I am, and it's not my fault. A person with fatness is like a person with cancer. Sure, individual choices contribute a bit to whether or not you get cancer, but it's mostly the luck of the draw. Having fatness is like having cancer, and therefore fat should not be pejorative. It might be, in practice, but somebody like Aubrey Gordon is arguing that fat ought not be an insult, and therefore fat people should reclaim the word. Never forget what you are, for surely the world will not. Make it your strength, then it can never be your weakness. Armor yourself in it, and it will never be used to hurt you. George R. R. Martin, a fat person, wrote in the voice of his character with dwarfism, Tyrion Lannister, a character who is often Martin's proxy in his stories, I think, And I think that's pretty damn good advice. Why do you think I call attention to my adiposity all the time? I want to defang all of the people on the internet who want to hurt me with comments about my body, and such people do exist. Many, many more people just listen happily to the Adam Ragusea podcast. When they send an email or they post a comment, it's usually something positive and kind or it's like a a yes and statement, or sometimes it's a perfectly polite and legitimate yes but comment. And sometimes it is a full on denunciation of what I said or did, but it's a good faith argument from someone with good intentions. And it, it might even be a little bit right. And so I should take it seriously. And I think that was the case with this email that we've been discussing for the last hour. There was a right thing in there, I think. You can send any kind of message you want to askadamquestions at gmail.com. That's where I gather audience material to use in this podcast. Send me a video or audio file attached if you want me to actually use it in the show. I'm excited to go back up to my fancy DC hotel room and go to sleep. And then I'm excited to go back to Tennessee and to start writing and editing all of the videos that I'm going to get out of this visit to Washington here. Spoiler alert, space food. Make good choices. I'll talk to you next time.